We began a brand new series last week that we are calling No Fear. And uh, in this series, we are taking some time to consider what the Bible says about fear. And last week, we said that the Bible talks about two different kinds of fear. One that it says we should have, and one that it says we shouldn't. The kind we should is the fear of the Lord, and the kind we shouldn't is a spirit of fear. And we said there were more than 365 verses in the Bible telling us not to be afraid, to be strong and courageous, and not to be afraid. But it's not that the Bible doesn't want us to have any fear at all. It's just the Bible wants us to have the right kind of fear. And we said that the fear of the Lord, to honor him, to revere him, to understand his power and his might over all the storms of life, to have that kind of fear of the Lord, exists in inverse proportion to a spirit of fear that we experience in life. So the more that we fear and honor and revere the Lord, the greater our faith is, the less we fear about the world. But the opposite is also true. That the more fear we experience in this world, the more we live in a spirit of fear, it reveals in us a lack of faith or a lack of reverence and fear for the Lord. And so this week we're going to continue as we are for the next few weeks on this subject of fear. And I want to start out by just exploring this idea with you that fear is actually the very first emotion that you ever felt. Now I have four kids and I was in the room when all four of them were born. And when they were born, they did not come out rejoicing that they were glad they were here. Some of you have experienced this. Anybody ever been in the room when a child's been born? Okay, they do not come out with the emotion of joy, do they? It's not happiness. It's not an emotion of contentment or peace. They come out in fear. I mean, just think about it. They they are cast into this world, light shining on them, bright. It's cold. There's some strange person sticking his finger down their throat. You know, why are you hitting me? I was just born. I haven't done anything yet. I mean... There's all kinds of fear when we're born, and, and it's the very first emotion that we have. And actually, because of the traumatic change that takes place, you know, we're used to a, a warm place that we're safe inside our, our mother's womb, and then suddenly we're cast into this cold, cruel world. And, and really, every change we experience after that, isn't there a measure of fear that comes along with it? That, that even if it's a good change, there's just a, a measure of fear. That change always instills in us some kind of fear. So I was thinking back to, um, to when I graduated high school, and I was so excited to graduate high school, but there was something inside of me that was a little bit nervous and afraid about what does it mean to be an adult, and now i got to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and get a job. And then I remember as Sherry and I were getting ready to, to be married, I was so excited to, to be marrying her, but there was a little bit of fear, you know, will I be a good husband? You know, when we stand up there and say, till death do us part, that's a long time. Whew. And, and so, you know, how would that work out? And then, and then there's that moment when you realize that, you know, you're, you're going to become a parent. And you're, respo- you're like, you really have to be responsible for another human being's life. And While you're excited, there's a little bit of fear that comes along. And and the changes aren't always good. Sometimes the changes are bad that bring fear. Um, Sometimes it's it's a physical condition that comes along. And there's a doctor's report. And, you know, your life is going to be radically changed. And treatments and all kinds of things that are going to, that's going to mean for you and your family. Sometimes that fear comes because we've lost somebody that we love. Maybe, maybe we've lost them to death or, or we've gone through a divorce and, and our life is going to be different. The world is going to be different for us and fear comes along. That fear is a part of life and it always seems to accompany change. Here's what I want 
you to know today, and this is why this is so important when we talk about knowing and understanding biblical fear, that fear is God's invitation to faith and freedom. Fear is God's invitation to faith and freedom. Every time you face fear, every time there's something in your life that causes you uh, to be tempted with a spirit of fear, also right behind that is God saying, trust me, have faith in me. God's saying, I want you to experience a level of freedom that maybe you've never experienced before. You see, we're not only born with a spirit of fear, we're not only born with the emotion of fear, but I'm convinced that we're born again with fear of the Lord. That it is our fear and reverence for the Lord that leads us to salvation. That when we truly understand and recognize who God is, his great majestic power, that when we see him as the righteous judge over all, when we see ourselves in the right perspective with him, there should be a level of fear that draws us not away from him, not into hiding, but toward him, toward his son Jesus, where we find salvation. That we're born again with a spirit of fear, with a, with a reverent fear for the Lord. Listen to what it says in Psalm 111 and in Proverbs 9. Anytime a verse is repeated in different books of the Bible, that's a significant thing. And this, ver- this phrase is actually repeated at least these two times. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. That, that if you want to be wise, you want to understand God, it begins as you have a proper respect and fear for the Lord. The first time that we encounter fear in the Bible is in Genesis. And you'll remember the story. We've talked about it many, many times. All good theology begins in the book of Genesis. And you'll you remember the story. Adam and Eve were told they could eat from any tree they wanted except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet Satan, that tempter, is there in the form of the serpent and he speaks to Eve and to Adam who is standing there with her. And what does the serpent use but fear to try to get Adam and Eve to do the very thing God told them not to do? The serpent says, did God really tell you that you could not eat from this tree? Did he really tell you that you would die? The serpent subtly telling Adam and Eve, listen, God's holding out on you. And he's playing into a fear that maybe there's something that we don't have that we should have. Maybe my rights have been violated. Maybe something's not been fair. So Adam and Eve take and they eat from the fruit of the tree. And immediately their eyes are opened. And they recognize that they're naked. Now they were naked before, right? They just didn't know it. But suddenly they're, they're naked and they're afraid and they're ashamed. And they've, they've been exposed. And so what do they do? But they try to hide from God. Which, which by its, on its own face is absurd to think that you could hide from God. It's almost like the playing hide and seek with a preschooler in your house. You know where they are. But God's out looking for Adam and Eve and calling to Adam. And, and he calls to Adam. And listen to what Adam says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. I heard you in the garden and I was, what's that word? Afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked. So I hid. See, Adam's fear drove him to hide from God. Adam was afraid that he would be recognized, that that he would be seen for who he really was, that he would be exposed. It it reminds me, some of you may have this same memory. It might be a scar for some. You remember when you were in maybe middle school, the first time you had to like dress out for gym? 
Remember that? Yeah, everybody remembers. There's an awkward silence when we talk about it. You had to go into the locker room. And the, you had to, like, take your clothes off in front of other people. And, you know, you're, you're a little nervous about that, and you're afraid. You know, what are people going to think? And, and there's just this, all these feelings that sort of come up. So you're trying to, like, change behind the, you know, the door of the locker. Trying to, everybody's just a little awkward, a little shamed. Why? Because Adam was experiencing this. He understood and knew that he was going to be seen for who he really was. There was nothing going to cover up his nakedness before God. God was going to see him. And some of us have been trying to hide from God for the same reason. And we do it with all kinds of things. We sow fig leaves out of our work. We think, well, if I just work harder and if I pour myself into my career, if I make a name for myself, I can, I can somehow prove myself, my worth, my value to God because I don't want him to see what's really underneath, my nakedness, my shame. Or we pour ourselves into even something good, even something like religion. We think if I could just clothe myself in these fig leaves, maybe God wouldn't recognize me. And, and we hide from God. That mismanaged fear always leads us to sin and sin always tempts us to hide from God in, behind something. But notice what God does. God meets Adam just the way he is. And it, the Bible tells us that he clothes Adam. That God himself takes and makes a sacrifice of an animal. And that first blood sacrifice was to cover up the shame and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And so throughout the Bible, we're told to have a reverence and a fear of the Lord. And some have said, well, the God of the Old Testament is the God of fear. That's not the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and a God of peace, as if the God of the Old Testament weren't a God of love and peace. And yet you see it, even as he tries to clothe clothe Adam in his nakedness, you see God's grace revealed even at the beginning, even at the outset of the fall of man. And in the New Testament, you see the same God of reverence and fear. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, don't have a spirit of fear, but you need to have a healthy reverence and fear of the Lord. So I want to look today at the life of an Old Testament character who I think reveals to us and shows to us through the course of his whole life this truth that, God's, that, that God invites us through fear to faith and freedom. And I want to do it uh, through the life of David, through Psalm 23 that we, that we read earlier. Uh, many people uh, believe that Psalm 23... Uh, was written in the end, at the end of David's life. That is, David was coming to the end of his life and looking back and reflecting over all that he had experienced, uh, that this psalm really captures uh, his walk with the Lord. And notice what he says. Where does the walk take place? It takes place in the valley of the shadow of death, doesn't it? takes place in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, the older uh, that we get, the more aware that we are of our mortality. The Bible says that our life is like a vapor, like a, like a mist. It's like a blade of grass. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And, and when we're young, we think we're invincible and we're immortal. But as we get older, we begin to realize how quick life is, how fast life goes by. And David is looking back on his life and he's remembering, he's realizing, I have lived in the valley of the shadow of death for all of my days. And so have you. That's the human condition. That we're born into this shadow of death. The minute we take our first breath, we're already beginning the death process. That was a consequence of sin in our world, wasn't it? That we live in the valley of this 
shadow of death. And there's a lot to be afraid of in this valley. Um, Tim Keller points out that before you were a Christian, you only had one enemy. That enemy was God. The Bible says that, that if you're living in rebellion and sin, that you are an enemy of God. But once you become a Christian, uh, all of God's enemies become your enemies. And there are three basic enemies. There's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. The world that we live in has danger. There's death all around. There's destruction. There's sin. There's violence. David faced all of this in the course of his life on many occasions. I want to look at two things, two examples of, of David walking through this valley of the shadow of death and, and how, his, how his faith in God or what carried him through. The, the first one, you'll remember, David was a young boy. And David was the youngest of seven brothers, and so David got all the chores the older brothers didn't want, so he would be out tending the sheep. And the older brothers were sent off to war with King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, but he was an evil king. And God had already said that he was going to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to another, a a man after his own heart. So, So David's brothers were off fighting with Saul, and David's father, Jesse, called David in from the fields where he was tending the sheep and said, David, I want you to take some food up to your brothers. And so David packs up the cooler and he hikes up the hill and he gets up the hill and he finds all of the soldiers, all the the army of Israel is camped out on the hill and they're just, they're all afraid, they're terrified. And on the other hill, he sees the, uh, the Philistine army and they've decided that rather than everybody getting their hands dirty and bloody in battle, that they're just gonna each send down their very best warrior to fight it out in the valley between the two and so the, 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 the Philistines have a real ringer they got this guy named Goliath and he's a giant the scripture says he's nine foot tall he's got six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot and he's down there in the valley just begging somebody to come and all the Israelites are up there going I'm not going down there I mean, have you seen that guy? I mean, he will eat us for lunch. We're not going down. So here comes David up on the mountain. He's 15, 16 years old. He brings a lunch. He's like, what are you guys doing? What's going on? Why isn't there any fighting going on? And like, look down there in the valley. Nobody wants to go fight him. And so David says, I'll do it. So David goes down in the valley. And he's armed with a slingshot and five stones. And he makes what I think is one of the most incredible speeches in all the Old Testament. And it's a speech that maybe you should memorize. Some of you need to say this speech every morning when you look in the mirror. Some of you need to say this speech as you're driving into work. Some of you need to remember this speech the next time you're waiting in the waiting room of a doctor's office or in the, in the, in the surgical waiting room of a hospital while you're waiting on a loved one. You need to know this speech. Listen to what he says. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. He's down in the middle of the valley facing death at the hands of a giant. He's just a little boy, 15, 16 years old at most. And listen to what it says. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. (laughs) You know what happens? He picks up a stone 
And he slings that stone right between the eyes of that giant, and that giant falls down. And then David takes the sword from the giant and chops off his head. And then the whole army of Israel goes and attacks the Philistines, and there's a great victory. But notice what David didn't rely on. He didn't rely on other people. He didn't rely on conventional weapons. He didn't rely on his own strength. His confidence and faith was in the Lord. And the valley of the shadow of death was David's invitation to experience that kind of faith. There there was another occasion shortly after this. David became wildly popular. And all the people were singing David's praise. And Saul, that king whom God had already removed his favor from from Saul. Saul was jealous and Saul began to seek to find ways to kill David. So David and some of his men uh, were, were running away from Saul. And Saul had his whole army, the whole army of Israel was in pursuit of David. David and about 30 of his men were hiding in a cave as Saul's army passed by. And as it would, as, as it would be, Dave, uh, Saul decided that he needed to go into the cave and take care of some personal business like you have to do from time to time. So he's going into the cave by himself. And he's in the most vulnerable position you can imagine. And David's men are in the back of the cave. They're telling David, now's your chance. You can go kill him. I mean, God's already said you're going to be the next king. And this guy's, this guy's a loser. Just go kill him. He doesn't even have his sword on him. He is, he is ready. God has delivered him to you. I want you to listen to what David said. First Samuel chapter 24. Listen to what David said. David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Now, just think about this. It was the same reverence and fear of the Lord that inspired David to pick up the slingshot and slay the giant that also led David to lay down the sword and not strike Saul. That it was his fear and reverence of the Lord that gave David the confidence to slay this massive giant with all these weapons. And it was that same reverence and fear that caused him to say, I will not strike the Lord's anointed. Sometimes God is calling you to pick up the slingshot and it takes a tremendous amount of courage to face your giants. I don't know what they are. But when you understand that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, when you have that kind of faith, you can overcome any giant. But sometimes it takes just as much courage, maybe even more, to lay the sword down and wait on the Lord's deliverance. What made David such a great man of faith is that he was willing to do both. He, he was willing to step out in bold, courageous action to strike Goliath. And he was willing to step back in humble submission that required a tremendous amount of courage and faith in God. He was facing death on both accounts. He responded differently both times. But he was motivated by the same God, by the same truth, a fear and a reverence for the Lord. Now David didn't always get it right. David struggled. And and when David struggled, he struggled big. And there were times when David forgot about the fear of the Lord. One such example uh, can be found shortly after David became king in Jerusalem and was crowned king. David decides he's going to go and bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. 
And he, um, he sends, he, he, rather than taking the time to see if the word of God has any directions for how that might be done, uh, David's just anxious to accomplish what he feels is, is a good work. And so he just calls up two men in a truck and sends them after the Ark of the Covenant. The problem was, the word of God clearly says, you shouldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant or you will die. So the two men died. I mean, they were struck dead. And David is overcome with fear. Listen to what it says after this in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? You see, David forgot. He rushed into a good work. But you do understand that the means don't justify the ends. That as we walk through this life, the way we live our life, the way we accomplish even what we think may be good things... It matters to God. It's why he's given us his word. And he's called us to have a humble and a reverent fear for him. That we should seek to understand his precepts and his directives. That we need to understand that. David forgot. But look what happened. He was reminded about the fear of the Lord. And what did that fear cause him to do? It caused him to ask an important question. How can I bring the ark of God home to me? See, a healthy fear of the Lord will drive you into God's word to know him to understand his ways, and to seek to live your life in accordance with the precepts that he has set out for us. On another occasion, much later in David's life, David uh, was an older man, and he had sort of let some of the fire go out of his belly. You know, he'd fought a lot of battles, won a lot of victories. I mean, he was sitting on high, you know. He he had experienced all of the the triumphs and the joys, and... uh, David decided he wasn't going to go out in springtime with, the, with all the soldiers to war. Instead, he stayed home, and he let his guard down. And He noticed a beautiful woman taking a bath, and he had an affair with this woman. And then to cover the affair up, he had her husband killed. This is, this is David, the, the man after God's own heart. And a lack of fear and reverence for the Lord led him right into sin. So Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him. And David, who had sinned greatly, repents greatly, and he pours out his heart to God. And and God says, David, your sins are forgiven, but you have unleashed a torrent of terrible consequences for your family. That your head will go down to the grave in sorrow because of what has happened here. And so David lives his life, and you can read the account of the end of David's life. Many terrible, horrible things happen with his kids. And sort of the, 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 the crisis, the main crisis point comes when his son Absalom is pursuing him. And Absalom actually drives David and some of his closest advisors out of the palace. And Absalom sets himself up. David's own son sets himself up as king in David's place. And David's running. And, and he, he's got nowhere else to turn but back to the Lord. And, and he, writes, uh, he writes a beautiful psalm. Psalm chapter 3. Listen to what he says. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. See, that's what fear does to us, doesn't it? It, it, it can make us paranoid. 
It can make us paranoid for real physical danger. How many people are against me? But it also causes us to question, what are people saying about me? What are they thinking about me? How's my, what, what's happened to my, my character, my integrity? Notice what he said. Everybody's saying, God will not deliver me. That David's sin didn't only result in David's shame, but David's saying, God, they're questioning you. They're even questioning you. And then... Verse 3, but you, Lord. Some of the most powerful verses in the Bible begin with but God, but the Lord. Listen to what David says. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. A shield around me. Do you ever watch any of the old movies with uh, uh, soldiers going into battle? You ever see those shields that, that aren't just the shield you put on your arm, but it's, it's a shield that like goes all the way around. They used them in ancient times when a soldier was going to take in a, a fortress or a stronghold. You know, you know, there's something about those shields that uh, it protects every side of you, but it also eliminates the opportunity for you to wield a sword. But David's saying, I can't even fight this battle. You're the shield all the way around me, God. There's nothing I can do. I am helpless. I've been exposed You are a shield around me, my glory. See, it's not my reputation, it's yours, God. You're my glory. Not what they're saying about me, but what they're saying about you. And the one who lifts my head high. When do you cast your head down? Isn't it when you're ashamed? Have you ever not been able to look somebody in the eye? You ever been so ashamed of something you've done, something you've said, that you found yourself just looking down to the ground, struggling to make eye contact? And what does David say? God, you reached out your hand and you lifted my head. God, I was ashamed of me. I was ashamed of what I did. I was ashamed of my nakedness. But you weren't ashamed of me. That you're my shield. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. David wrote in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they, what's that next word? Comfort me. Do you know what a shepherd's staff is used for? I mean, it's used to maybe ward off some some, uh, animals or bad guys from stealing the sheep. But more than that, the shepherd's rod and staff are used to whack the sheep on the behind. The the rod and the staff are used to keep the sheep sheep safe, to, to drive them in the right direction. The shepherd's crook is used to pull a sheep out of danger. And David says at the end of his life, as he's looking back over everything that he's faced and all the times that, 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 that God has corrected him, he's saying, God, every time you were comforting me in the midst of my discipline. And he says, you prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The table's in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death and the enemies are standing around. Satan's name in the Old Testament is the accuser. And isn't that what he does? Doesn't he tempt you into sin and then accuse you of the sin that you committed? It's what happened with Adam and Eve, isn't it? And so Satan is accusing, and David says, you prepared this feast before me right in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, which is used for healing, and my cup overflows. You're the lifter of my head. God, 
Why should I hide from you? All the fear that I'm facing, fear from the world around me, fear from the fle- my own flesh. I mean, David fell into sin because of his own flesh. Have you ever been there? You ever been at that place where you knew the right thing to do, but you couldn't do it? And the bad thing that you didn't want to do, you kept on doing? Even Paul, super Christian Paul, said this. He said, I don't understand it. I know what I should do, but I don't. And the evil I shouldn't do is what I keep on doing. That, that, that in my mind, I, I, I want to follow God's law, but there's a war raging inside of me. David fell into that, and the accuser stands telling him, you're condemned, you should be ashamed, you should hide. Sow some fig leaves together and hide from God. Meanwhile, it's God who's pursuing David. I wonder if you'll take some time to answer a few questions this week. I wonder if you're hiding from God. And if so, why? Why are you hiding from him? What is it in your life that's causing you to hide from God? What what is it that you're afraid of? I mean, the reality is he already knows it all anyway. He already sees you. Why are you hiding? Is there something or someone you fear more than God? If so, who and why? What would change if you truly believed that God was bigger than all your fears? What it would change if you truly believed that while you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that God was with you that whole time? There's a, there's a preacher who tells a story about a woman in his church who um, was battling some, some mental illness, some paranoia, and and the whole congregation kind of knew this woman had a reputation. And so everybody just kind of understood and, and was very compassionate and kind toward this woman. But, but on one se- in one season of, uh, the, of the life of the church, this woman just became so paranoid. And she began to tell everybody that she was being chased, that there were two men who were after her. And she would tell this story over and over again. And every time she'd see the pastor, she'd say, Pastor, two men are after me. They are hunting me down. They followed me home last night. And, and so finally, I, whether it was out of a, a moment of just frustration or, or divine inspiration, the preacher just stopped her in the middle of her latest rant about these two people who were following her. And he said, he said listen, I want to tell you, I know who they are. I know who's after you. I know their names. It's goodness and mercy, and they're going to follow you all the days of your life. So stop running from them. Some of you are running from God, and you feel like you're being pursued by your shame and by your sin. And the best thing you could do is stop running. And be overcome by the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. That he's prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He wants to anoint your head with oil and he wants to allow your cup to overflow. And that fear is his invitation to experience faith and freedom. John Piper says this, If you are running from God because you are afraid of him, then you are not yet as afraid as you ought to be. In fact, your very flight is a mockery of God, presuming to think you could outrun him. If you really fear him and love your own life, stop running, turn around, and hug his neck for dear life. 
I wonder if you're tired of running, if you're tired of hiding, if you're tired of sewing fig leaves together, if you're willing to allow the hand of your loving Heavenly Father to reach down and lift your head and to anoint you with oil. You can have that today. Because there is a good shepherd, the best shepherd ever. Jesus Christ came and faced fear, death, and the grave and laid down his life that we might be able to overcome the struggles of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Will you turn and allow his goodness and mercy to overwhelm you? Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to invite you just to consider for a moment the question um, that I asked earlier. Are you running from God? Are you trying to hide from him behind work, behind religion, behind a hobby, behind an addiction? I wonder if today you would just allow him to catch you. He's been in pursuit of you. That happens in the sincerity of your own heart. It doesn't come because you say any magic words to a prayer or you walk an aisle or you're baptized even. It it comes when in your own heart you humbly submit and surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That you stand before him fully exposed and you allow him to lift your head and make you whole. To make him Lord of your heart and your life. It might sound something like this for you. Lord, I come to you today and I'm tired of running. I know I'm naked. I'm ashamed. I've been exposed. But yet, Father, I know because of your mercy and your goodness that have pursued me because of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, my head can be lifted up and I can be made whole. And I submit and surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, then the goodness and the mercy of the Lord has overcome you right in this moment. Father, we thank you for the simple invitation that all we have to do is stop and be caught. Lord, may it be so for all of us today. In Jesus' name, amen.